Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. If you've got a Bible, I would love it if you would turn to Genesis chapter 32. We're actually going to pick up where we left off last weekend. We left off with verse 28 of Genesis 32, where Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And we are obviously continuing our series entitled The Name Changer. And this weekend and next weekend, so the first two weekends were kind of one message, and the second pair of weekends is basically like one message as well. We're going to be talking about identity stuff, and we're going to answer over these two weeks two different questions, all right? Here's the title of this weekend's message. Who do you say I am? This is a question from God's perspective. Who do you say I am? I want you to see where this comes from. Let's read it together. Genesis 32, we'll go back to 28 to catch up. Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, wrestled all night with Jacob. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel. Because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Watch what comes out of Israel's name, uh, Israel's mouth next. He just wrestled with Jesus. His name's been changed. Out of all the things he could say next, he could have said, this is amazing. Finally, I'm no longer the little deceiver. But he doesn't say that. He could say, this is amazing. The God of the universe has renamed me. He doesn't say that. Watch what he says next. Please tell me your name. Gangster. Like none of us saw that coming. His name just got changed. And the first words out of his mouth are, that's great and all. Please tell me your name. And I believe there is a very important truth embedded in this one verse. And here it is. You will never understand who you are until you first understand who God is. How can you understand yourself when you misunderstand the God in whose image you were created? You can't. Think about it like this. In my opinion, two of the most important questions any human will ever be asked. I won't say these are the top two, but I will say in my opinion, they are in the top five. And here are two of the biggest questions any human will ever be asked. Question number one, who is God? Question number two, who am I? Now, here's the problem with these two questions. If you attempt to answer question number two, Before you answer question number one, you're always going to get question number two incorrect. You will always be wrong. Just think about the day in which we live. There's a a word that's being used a lot more when we talk about identity. We hear it a lot more in this day than we did in the day in which I was growing up. It's the word identify. How do you identify? Now, let me give you what this question really is. In your opinion, 
How do you see you? That's the question. Because think about it, and please, let's not laugh at this. I'm not trying to make a joke. I'm trying to help us all understand, especially if there might be one among us who is in a wrestling match over their identity right now, and they are identifying as something other than that which God created them to be. Because I don't know if you know this, but you can identify as a cat if you would like. You can. There are schools that allow children to write in, they identify as a feline. I can identify as the president of the United States. It does not make me him. But here's the, the underlying thing. Someone isn't bad because they misunderstand their identity. Anyone who misunderstands their identity simply misunderstands God. It's that simple. As long as you misunderstand God, you will misidentify yourself. Now, how can we understand God? Well, one of the most simple ways to understand who God is, is to dive into his word and take a look at all of the names he goes by. He literally tells us who he is and what he's like. According to Proverbs 22.1, a good name is more desirable than great riches. In biblical times, uh, and still to this day, I mean, many of us appreciate a good name, but what does that mean? A good name meant more than a good reputation because it identified the character of the person carrying it. A name identifies the character of the person carrying it. We can learn what God is like and who God is by just taking a look at what he's told us about himself. And this starts with the names he goes by. Some of the names, he spoke of himself. Some of the names, others spoke of him. And because it's in his word, here's how we see it. I agree with that. If he allowed it in his book, he is co-signing on the name. So we're going to look at some of the names that some people gave him, ascribed to him, but also some names he gave himself. Psalm 34 verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is what we're doing in this message. We're magnifying the Lord by exalting his name and names. Question, when do we need to use a magnifier, a magnifying glass? When you're having trouble seeing something, right? Those of us who are getting older understand how this works, right? We go to the restaurant, they give us a menu, and for those of us who are stubborn donkeys and refuse to walk around wearing glasses because of the statement it makes about where they are in life, I don't know anyone like that, You sit down in the restaurant, they hand you a menu, and what's the first thing you do? You find the distance from your eyes that helps you see the tiny little letters the best, right? My wife has this trick. We should both have glasses all the time at this stage of life. We don't, because we're just stubborn like that. Here's what she does. If we're in a dark restaurant, she takes out her phone and zooms in on the menu. 
Why? She's admitting I'm having trouble seeing what I'm trying to see. Isn't it interesting that scripture says, we all have this problem with God. He needs to be magnified. The only time you need to magnify something is when you've minimized it. And so we're going to magnify the Lord by exalting his names together. Five names we're gonna go through in this message, five names on the leader's cut, so 10 total. Uh, for those of you who do the leader's cut, here's word, uh, point number one, name number one, El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God Almighty, God All-Powerful. Genesis 17, verses one and two. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. This is before, just before God changes Abram's name to Abraham. What happens after God says, I'm going to give you countless descendants? Homie is 99 years old. He has no children yet. He falls on his face before the Lord. This is before God tells him how it's all going to go down. God comes to him and says, before I tell you what I'm about to tell you, that I'm going to give you countless descendants at 99 years old and your wife 100 years old, I'm going to tell you who I am. I am God all-powerful. A hundred-year-old womb was a divine setup for the God who is El Shaddai to prove it. Here's the problem with the name El Shaddai. There was a song written a couple decades ago that kind of is like a lullaby. When in actuality, that's probably not how you would sing or say El Shaddai, like Amy Grant or Sandy Patty. It's a great song, sweet song, but... but when would you call on God Almighty when you're in trouble? And when you're in trouble, backed into a corner with the army of Egyptians chasing you, do you think you would start singing El Shaddai in that lullaby tone? Or do you think you would call out, God Almighty? He is the God who has all power. Now, one of the things I love to do is like a little boy with his daddy, I like to ask the God of the universe questions. And so this is, he, he's my favorite subject, okay? If you've been at this church for any amount of time, you already know that. He is my addiction. He is my obsession. I love me some him. And I love to ask my daddy questions, especially about himself. One of my favorite requests of God is this. Father, would you show me a side of yourself you've never allowed me to see before? Would you let me see a side of you I've never seen before? It's one of my favorite requests. Well, with that comes one of my favorite questions. It's, it involves the word why. A little bit like our children when they were annoying, when they were young. Daddy, why? Daddy, why? Mommy, why? Why? Why is the sky blue? Why do you have to go to work? Why does ice cream cost money? <laughs> I love to ask him, why? So this, 
name, El Shaddai, God Almighty, God All-Powerful, speaks to his omnipotence. And so I ask, God, why are you all-powerful? Why are you omnipotent? I'll just say I'm submitting this to you, and I always try and say this. I'm not trying to act like I have a hotline to God that no one else has. I'm just a sheep, and, and Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. So please, I don't hear God because I'm a pastor. I hear God because I'm a sheep. But I don't put it above God's word because I can always be wrong. But I'll just tell you when I asked this question what I felt like the response was. Preston, before you even knew I am, I made a promise to you that I will never leave you or forsake you. And if I didn't have all power, that means someone could have more power than me. And if someone had more power than me, they could have the power to remove me from you. You wanna know why I have all power? You're one of my highest reasons. I refuse to allow anyone to separate me from you. And so I have all power. What? You have all power because you love them so much that you don't want anybody removing you from them? Do we even think about his omnipotence like this? That there's a romantic why behind it? He is El Shaddai, God all-powerful. Here's the second name. He is Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals you. Exodus 15, 26. God says, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will, I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent in the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you, Yahweh Rapha. I am the God who heals you. Now, if you've ever asked me to pray for you, when you were in need of physical healing because of a physical affliction, you've heard me quote this right here. Because we did not go on record. We were not the first ones to say that God is our healer. God himself went on record and said, I am the Lord, your God. I am the God who heals you. Yahweh Rapha. Have, have you ever heard your doctor say these words to you? You are a picture of perfect health. Anybody ever heard your doc say that to you? Okay. Your doctor's lying to you. I don't know if you know this. That is so untrue. Preston, I'm in really good shape. Sure. I'm not taking that away from you. Heart looks great. Bone density looks great. Muscle mass looks great. It's not perfect. Here's why. There's no such thing as perfect health in an imperfect world. See, part of the reason that God, the God who heals us, Yahweh Rapha, kind of gets a little bit of a bad rap is because people make physical health an idol. So they expect perfect health when that's not possible in an imperfect world. Now, the day is coming where there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness. 
And how many of us are looking forward to that day? A day of no more arthritis. A day of no more migraine headaches. A day of no more broken bones. A day of no more my body moving slower than my mind. That day is coming, but we're not there yet. I wanna show you just three different ways that God heals us. First, obviously, he heals us physically. Genesis 20, verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants so they could have children. Their wombs had been shut because Abraham had played a little tricky trick, said that his wife wasn't his wife and Abimelech tried to take Abraham's wife and God shut all the wombs. Abraham prayed and scripture says God healed their wombs and opened them back up. We know that Jesus, during his three-year run on the earth, went about healing many who had sickness, right? So we know God heals us physically, but that's not the only way God heals us. He also heals us spiritually. Psalm 41 verse 4, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. How does he heal us spiritually? The blood of Jesus. Sin creates an eternal sickness that can only be healed by the blood of the lamb. He heals us spiritually. I actually think that Jesus put a higher priority on spiritual healing than he did even on physical healing. Just a couple of instances. Mark chapter one, many people, were being healed from their sickness. And the crowd started closing in on Jesus and his disciples. And, and the disciples say, hey, like this, this is crazy. Look at all of this. All these people getting healed. And Jesus says, we need to go to the next city where I must preach. He didn't say heal. Now he went and healed, but he said, here's the reason why I have to go to the next city. It isn't to physically heal them. It's to spiritually heal them. Remember in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus asked one of the most gangster questions in all the Bible. He says, what's more difficult? Saying your sins are forgiven or saying, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus was implying the forgiveness of sins, spiritual healing is a lot bigger of a deal than physical healing that lasts merely for a lifetime. Spiritual healing lasts for eternity. Physical healing lasts possibly, best case scenario, for the rest of my life, but maybe not. He heals us physically, he heals us spiritually, he also heals us emotionally. Hearts are bound to be broken in a world which is broken. Psalm 147 verse three, God heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. He quoted that passage in Isaiah that day in the synagogue. This is why I came. To heal the brokenhearted. Here's what concerns me a little bit though, and I wanna be careful with this. And I'm not anti-doctor and I'm not anti-medicine. I'm just pro-God first. Never reach for a pill before you reach for the pillar. 
I'm not saying no pill. Please hear me. I'm just saying don't ask a pill to do a job only the pillar can do when it comes to your emotional healing. Jesus doesn't want to numb you. He wants to heal you. Now, as I was preparing for this message, knowing that, I, that we were going to talk about God being the God who heals us, the question coming up, well, what happens when God doesn't heal? There was a line I felt like the Lord gave me. If you're a little bit been out of shape towards God because you prayed for him to heal either yourself or someone you love physically and he didn't do it, here's what I would say. Just because he doesn't, doesn't mean he isn't. It just means he didn't. Just because God doesn't heal someone you ask him to heal doesn't mean he isn't our God who heals us. It just means according to his perfect will, he didn't. He's the God who heals us. Here's the third name. And I had no idea this one was going to go the direction it did. I almost pulled it out of the message several times this week, but he just kept shoving it in there. Point number three, the Lord of heaven and earth. Not going to give you the Greek name for this because it would just be too complicated. But Jesus actually calls the Father the Lord of heaven and earth. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. If you're in Genesis 32, I would love it if you would turn over to Colossians chapter 1 because I want you to see these verses in your own Bible, all right? This is speaking of Jesus. Remember, Jesus being God. I want you to hear these words, and then I want to show you a picture he gave me this week, all right? Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Aren't you grateful that God doesn't make us guess what he's like? One of the biggest reasons he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to the earth is so that we could get a clear picture of what he, God, is like. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. Watch this next line because it is G, capital G. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Here's the picture he gave me this week. I was sitting on a beach, staring at the beautiful waters of an ocean. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but have you ever sat on the beach kind of early in the morning by yourself, no one's laying out yet, no distractions, maybe a runner or two, and you, you, you just you see water as far as your eye can see, and you hear the peace that just comes as the waves crash. Anybody ever done this before? And you just get so overwhelmed at the bigness of God And here I am sitting on this shore, looking out into the waters of this ocean. And it's like he lets me see I'm stressed out about a lot of moving parts of my life. 
You've probably never been there. It's just me. And he starts pointing them out. Preston, you're, you're stressed about this plate spinning and you're stressed about this plate spinning and your mind's thinking about this moving part and this moving part and this moving part. And here you are seated before one of my favorite creations and you are distracted by all the moving parts in your world. And then he asked me this question. Preston, what would happen if I caused the earth not to rotate for one second? To be very honest, I've never thought about this question before. The only thing I knew to do was to Google the answer. <laughs> I'm sure a better theologian among us could have gotten direct revelation from God on this. I, I, I'm not that smart. I had to Google this thing. You know what I found? That if the earth stopped rotating for one second, that me sitting on the shore of the ocean in that one second, I would be thrown 460 meters from where I was seated. Earth rotates at 1,000 miles per hour. Anybody know the fastest wind ever recorded on the earth? It's about 250 miles per hour. If God caused the earth to stop rotating for a second, the entire earth would experience a 1,000 mile per hour wind. You know what that would create? Waves so high in our oceans, we couldn't even see the tops of the waves. A thousand mile per hour wind would knock down every building on the earth. Here I am seated on the ocean, stressing out about eight moving parts in my life. And the God of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, said, I hold the universe up with the word of my command. Preston, your little world with all of its little moving parts are nothing in comparison to all of that. That's easy. So is holding up the universe for the God who has all power. What? Like, do you ever have these moments with God where he shows you a side of himself and you're like, how, how are we even in relationship? You are too amazing. Here's his answer. Every time you ask that question, we're in relationship because you said yes, because I'm obsessed with you. I chose you from before the beginning of the earth. I've been staring at you before your mother even knew she was pregnant with you. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. I think he can hold up. Our, have you ever heard someone say, when you were stressed out and anxious, keep it together, bro? Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, I don't mean to call that person out. Don't keep it all together. You can't. But you can walk with the one who does hold it all together. Let me say it like this. The best way to keep it together is to consistently sit with the one who holds all things 
together. When we get shaky, it's just because we're listening to the one shaking us more than the one holding us. That's all. That little voice, as I sit on the waters of the ocean, saying, it's all going to come crumbling down. That's not how God talks. He's not freaking out, holding up the universe by the word of his power. He's chilling. But I got a revelation this week of just how amazing it is that this earth of ours rotates the way it does. Because if it didn't, we'd all be dead in a second. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Here's name number four, and this one was a fun one. El Cano. El Cano means jealous God. Exodus chapter 34, second commandment. God says, you must worship no other gods for the Lord whose very name is jealous. My man. His name is jealous. Is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. A lot of us misunderstand this one. Because how do we think about jealousy? Through a junior high lens. Right? Go back to when you were in junior high or high school, and you were in a relationship with somebody who struggled with unbridled insecurity, and it led to unbridled jealousy. We're trying to teach our boys this as they're beginning to be interested in young women, be looking for certain things. And one of the things we talk about is be on alert for unbridled insecurity as it manifests in unbridled jealousy. Well, daddy, what does jealousy look like? Well, when you get incessant texts, why were you talking to so-and-so? Do you even still like me? I'm not poking fun at anybody. Listen, if you have a child who operates like that, they don't understand their identity. They don't understand how God talks about them. Once somebody understands how God talks to them, you don't worry about all that other stuff. Like you don't actually worry about somebody saying something to you in your high school, in the lobby, because you know how God talks about you. And we're going to talk about that next week. This week is, who do you say I am? Next week is God answering a question, who do I say you are? Not who do you think you are. That's how most humans try and answer the question on their identity. No, no, no. Who does God say you are? But before I can take you there, I got to make sure you understand who God is. Because if you misunderstand God, you're going to misunderstand yourself. He is a jealous God. What does this mean? I thought jealousy was bad. How could jealousy be sanctified? Well, number one, if jealousy couldn't be sanctified, God wouldn't ever be jealous. A godly jealousy speaks to a passionate zeal to bring or restore a relationship that has been torn apart by infidelity or unfaithfulness. I don't know if you know this, we've all been unfaithful towards God. All of us. What does it mean that he's jealous? He's obsessed with restoring the relationship. Closing the gap with intimacy. Well, let me try and say it like this. I believe in Exodus 34 with the second commandment, God is answering a question when he says, I am the God whose name is jealous. Let me just teach you a little uh, theological tip. When God gives you an answer 
always search for the question he's answering. And in Exodus 34, I think God is answering a question. He gives the answer. He says, I'm the God who's jealous of his relationship with you. Okay, that's the answer. What's the question, Preston? Here's what I believe the question is. God, how would you describe yourself in regards to your relationship with me? Here's what I think he would say. My name is jealous. Well, God, what does it mean that your name is jealous, Preston? It means I hate sharing you with anyone else. Can your mind even contain this thought? That the God of the universe looks in your direction and says, you know what one of my favorite things is about today? Those few moments where I don't have to share you with anybody else. I love it when you come in to be with me without anybody else. Preston, my favorite part of your day is the day where I don't have to share you with anybody or anything. It happened last night. I went in to pray and I started praying about something, an issue. And he goes, can you please stop? I don't want to share you with that conversation right now. Do you know how sweet that is? That I bring to him business issues. And he says, Preston, can I please remind you? My business is you. I'm the God whose name is jealous. I hate sharing you. Here's the last name we're going to talk about. And this actually, I'm not going to do this total justice this weekend because next weekend's message actually picks up where we're leaving off. So here's the fifth name, Abba, which means in Hebrew, daddy. Now, point number one of next week's message is child of God. So we're going to talk more about it next week. So if you, if you feel like I don't do this justice, understand why. Because I'm not going to cover it all until next week. But here's why it's so important to see God, not just as father, but as daddy. If you don't see God as father, you'll never understand what it means to live as God's child. What kind of father is God? Jesus taught us. He's not just pater, father. He's Abba, daddy. Mark 14, verse 36. Jesus cries out in the garden that night. Abba! He, he doesn't just say, pater. Abba! Daddy! Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Preston's paraphrase, yet I love you so much, I want your will to be done, not mine, daddy. Two of the greatest theologians, and there are many, but two incredible theologians throughout humanity had some pretty awesome things to say about God as daddy. Martin Luther said, there is more eloquence in the words, Abba, Father, 
than in all the orations of Demosthenes or Cicero put together. Two words outrank all the thoughts of two geniuses. J.I. Packer was asked the question, what is a Christian? He said, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Jesus is asked in Matthew 6, teach us how to pray. Will you show us how to do this? If you go read through Matthew 6, Jesus drops the father's name incessantly. Our father, your father, your heavenly father, the father. And then when he begins to teach us, his disciples, how to pray, he says, here's how I want you to start off your prayer. And here's why I want you to start it off this way, because the father loves it when you start your prayers off in this manner. You want me to teach you how to pray? Here's how you start. Our father, daddy. We'll talk more next week about what it means to be a child of God, but what does it mean to be a father? Some of us have a hard time answering that question because of our earthly fathers. As I, as I tried to ponder this week, I have three children, biological children, and as I've thought through the different seasons of their lives, in some seasons, it looked like being a daddy meant being a provider. But mommies provide too. In some seasons, being a daddy meant being a disciplinarian. But mommies do that too. When I personalize this question and think about what's my favorite part of being a daddy as I get older and my children get older, here's the answer I came up with. I think one of the highest marks of every great daddy is being a great cheerleader. The name Abba, daddy, speaks of such intimacy, not just from the child to the father, but from the father to the child. You, you can not know many of the names of God and still fairly adequately understand what God is like if you just understand he is daddy. He's not distant. He promised to always be close. He's not obstinate. He's obsessed. He's not angry or abusive. He's always present for wherever you are every day, every moment of your life. And he's not just present, present. He's personally present and available. He's daddy. Jesus was asked, he asks, actually. He's sitting with his disciples one day and he says, Preston's paraphrase, I'm hearing a lot of people call me a lot of different things. Some good, some bad. 
What do you hear them saying about me? And his disciples respond saying, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the one true God. And Jesus said, you're right. And flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven gave you a revelation of who he is. Jesus was saying to his disciples, and I believe he's saying to us, I know who I am. Who do you say I am? Before we can ever talk about who you are, you need to be very clear on who I am. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.